Let's turn our Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we've been uh, sort of a brief uh, detour from the book of Corinthians and looking at this topic of courageous Christian living. And the text that, uh, that comes following the, uh, the passage we looked at last week fits in very well with a discussion that we want to have as a church family concerning the topic of small groups, uh, a context in which we can together cultivate vital relationships. And so I want to work through this text this morning with what I believe is Paul's focus, and that is to focus on the importance of relationships that sustain us in our Christian experience. Okay? The Christian life was never intended to be lived by individuals. Okay? When I say that, what I mean is this. It was never intended by Christ that we would live the Christian life alone, in isolation. When we come to Christ, we become part of a community. We become part of a new colony. Our citizenship is changed. And we, in a sense, enter onto a new team in the Christian experience. As Paul <clears throat> writes here, if you look at verse 12, you just, you, you just will remember that his initial discussion from verse 12 going down to verse 26 was about the things that had happened to him. If you see that in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. And then he goes into a discourse from verse 12 through verse 26 where he's discussing his personal circumstances and how he has been affected by them, how he is standing up in them because he wants the believers in Philippi to know how to pray for him. When you come to verse 27, there is a significant shift in the topic okay second half of the verse is where this is indicated he says then whenever i come to you or only hear about you or hear the as it might be more literally translated the things concerning you okay now so what do you find a shift away from paul's discussion about his personal experience in prison to the corporate experience of the church so and i believe there's a, a natural connection or flow here Paul's personal discussion relates to their corporate experience. It's the only reason that he would bring it up. Because they are together the body of Christ. Okay, and so that, that one thing I want you to notice as we go into this section is that there's a shift from personal concerns to the progress of the believers in Philippi. Verse 25, I think, gives you a hint at that. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. So, wrapped up in his discussion of personal affairs is this bent towards encouraging the heart of others. So even though he's discussing things about himself, verse 12 and following, he's discussing them because he knows that they, his experiences, will have a positive impact on the walk of his brothers and sisters in Philippi. So I think it's just important that you see that between verse 12, personal concerns, verse 27, corporate concerns. And that marks a shift in this passage. Now, verse 27 begins with a fascinating statement. In the New American Standard, what's the first word you have in verse 27? If you have the New American Standard, what do you, what's the first word you have? Only. Okay? In the New International, what's it say? Whatever happens. Okay? Now, the, the, the word for only means have a singular focus in spite of circumstances. There's really only one word there in the original language. It's the word Manon, we get our word mono, meaning one. Okay? But what is Paul saying? No matter what happens, only. 
have a singular focus in your Christian experience. And what is the singular focus that he wants every believer to have and the church corporately to have? Notice what he says in verse 27. Only or no matter what happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now it's an interesting statement. Usually in the epistles when Paul switches from heavy doctrinal discussion to practical discussion, he uses the word Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the gospel, right? And, and the word literally refers to taking steps, but it means live this kind of life. Here Paul uses a different word, and I think the, the emphasis that he's after is substantial and significant. Okay? Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word that is used to describe conduct yourselves has at its base the word political okay or polis city okay live then paul's emphasis is as citizens of the gospel okay as believers we are brought into a new experience a new set of relationships when we come to faith in christ paul alludes to that in philippians 3 and verse 20 if you turn ahead just one page and look at Philippians 3.20. And I think this will begin to make sense. So you could literally say in verse 27, conduct your lives as citizens of the gospel. When I come to chapter 3 and verse 20, he says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. How did that happen? Well, it's the result of the new birth. We are born out of this world into a new relationship with God by Christ okay and that new relationship is what Paul wants us to live consistently in light of so live your life live as a citizen of heaven now what are the ramifications of that statement I think it's it, it's something like this in Philippi the people of Philippi were citizens of Rome Philippi had the privilege of being a Roman colony that was bragging rights okay I grew up in a county called Montgomery County it's not bragging rights. We live next to a county called Bucks County. All right, most of you, if you're familiar with Newtown or Yardley, you know that that is like the upper echelon of Pennsylvania. It is, it is the top drawer. To say you're from Bucks County, that's bragging rights. To say you're from Montgomery County, it's not bragging rights. The people in Philippi knew that their living in a Roman colony gave them a sense of prestige. They knew that the typical person in Philippi, when they traveled around the world, they wanted other people to know where they were from. They were Roman citizens. Even Paul plays this card when he is persecuted at one time, doesn't he? He says, I am a Roman citizen. It was a matter of prestige. It brought to your life certain privileges and rights simply by virtue of being born in that town. So the people in Philippi knew what it was to live as citizens of Rome even though they were a small colony of Rome detached from the main land, they knew that they had the privilege of being a small piece of Rome in the area of Asia Minor. And it was something that brought them great pride and prestige. They were to live as citizens of Rome, even though they lived in Philippi. Understand this. Every Christian has a dual citizenship. We live here. But in Philippians 3.20, what does Paul say? He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Right? So when Paul comes at the beginning of verse 27, he says, live like citizens of the gospel in a manner that reflects well on the gospel of Christ. 
He is saying a mouthful in terms of our status as believers. This main verb then, live worthy or live as citizens, has an impact on what happens all the way down through verse 18 of chapter 2. It kind of governs over this entire passage. So, So the focus is live like citizens of heaven. Govern your life, not according to the standards of the culture or of society's rules and regulations and requirements. Folks, can we be honest this morning and and, and make this admission? There is a strong temptation on our part to blend in, and it is a strong pressure, is it not? To become citizens of the United States, to live as Americans instead of as Christians, because living as a Christian will sometimes draw a funny glance from the people around you. It will make you appear odd as if you don't fit in. Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying in Philippians 3.20? That as a Christian, the values and standards and the morality that you believe God's word establishes will cause you to live in America, but as a citizen of heaven. Okay? Now, when you start to try to live as a citizen of heaven, to stand up for God's truth, for God's directives, God's morality, what happens? You live in a world that at times gives you that look, and that look kind of wears you down. It's not easy to live the Christian life, and yet it is very clear in this passage and throughout the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, that God has called us as believers to live differently, a unique, a distinct life. We get worn down by the battle for truth, for moral clarity, etc., etc., etc. It is, indeed, easier to to give in, because giving in has the effect of reducing what? If I cave in, what reduces in my life? Conflict. Opposition. If I just modify my perspective on things a little bit, if I lighten up a little bit, then I'll experience less friction, but I can guarantee you this. Your life will be characterized by a lack of joy. Okay, we are called to live as citizens of God's heaven of the gospel of Christ in a context that isn't always encouraging to the standards that you have been called to live by according to the word of God. And I think it's for that reason that in this this text, we want to ask this question. How can the people in Philippi, how can we maintain unity and advance the cause of Christ effectively? Okay, how do we maintain unity as a church and in that unity advance the cause of Christ effectively? That's the question I want to answer for you this morning. How do we get the church to where God wants it to be? And I'm just going to give you three very simple thoughts. The first one is this. And this is just, this is just so uh, obvious, okay? Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves corporately, together, in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened. Okay, how can we stand firm and advance the cause of Christ effectively while protecting unity within the church? The first thought is this. Experience your Christian life together okay experience your christian life together okay this should be one of the most obvious emphases in the new testament 
All right, I think Paul's directive here is experience this new life. Live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven together. Live out your dual citizenship in this world as effective ministers and servants of the gospel of Christ. We are to do this, Paul says, whether I come to you or remain absent. What is he saying? It's an unconditional commitment to experience life together. Whether Paul's there or whether he's not there. Whether people are watching or whether they aren't. We are to contend for the gospel of Christ. Now, he's going to use two verbs in verse 28. Or verse 27, I'm sorry. Two verbs that are going to define this idea of experiencing life together. And they're two words that refer to the essence of team or corporate experience. Notice what he says. He says, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man. Okay, now he's speaking to them as a group. And he says, I want to know that you are standing firm together. That's experiencing life together. The idea of standing firm is a military term. It means to hold your ground as a soldier who does not budge from his post. He is in that position and he refuses to give it up. He is committed and he realizes that he's part of something bigger. He's standing firm together. And I love how Paul then wraps into this, that this standing firm, which requires great courage and energy, is to be done in the Spirit. And you say, Tim, what does he mean by in the Spirit here? Okay, I think he means stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the topic going back in verse 19. Paul says, pray for me. Or I'm sorry, he says, I know that your prayers... And the help given by the Spirit of Christ. Okay? So this Holy Spirit is there. Chapter or verse 1 of chapter 2. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit. So I believe that when the word Spirit here is used, in the context, it's speaking of the person of the Holy Spirit who comes to help us stand firm together. And I think the implication is this. As we commit to standing firm together and experiencing the Christian life together, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and aids us in that pursuit because that pursuit of life together glorifies and honors God. So he wants us to commit to standing firm together. And then the next part of verse 27, he uses another word. He says, stand together in one spirit and then contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, the idea of contending tells me that Certain parts of the Christian experience are going to feel confrontational. Okay? There is going to be, when I seek to advance the gospel of Christ, there is the anticipation in this statement of opposition. And so Paul says, you should contend together. The word it comes from two Greek words. The first part means with. The second part of the verb means athlete. Okay? So what it literally means is to athlete together okay to strive in the contest together it's not talking about individual sports here paul's talking about using a word that is talking about a corporate experience or a team experience okay so we are to strive together the picture that comes to my mind is the offensive line of a football team you can have a great star player on the offensive line but it's better if you have a group of men who are unified locking arms together to create an offensive line Okay, and Paul's 
I think, emphasis here is that we are to experience the Christian life together. As, and it's fascinating, he says this. He says, as one man. Literally, it means one sold. As if you were one person in your commitments, in your desires, in your emphasis. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? So the first thought is this. Paul's saying, look, experience the Christian life together. Stand firm together. Contend for the gospel together. Now, as a qualifier, let me say this. Contending for the gospel does not make being contentious with the gospel legitimate. You understand what I'm saying? Because the nature of the Christian experience is to stand firm and to contend, it doesn't give Christians the right to be contentious. Okay? Why? Because we are people that are overwhelmed by the love of God. The message we have to communicate is not a message of political victory. It's a message of victory over sin. And everyone who's part of this team has been brought onto this team and birthed into this colony of the heaven by the grace of God. So it will kill a contentious spirit in us. But it will also cause us to realize that we, we live in a world that doesn't embrace the gospel of a man who died on the cross to pay the price for my sin and that that death was necessary. Experience life together and you will be more effective in your Christian experience. Now, a thought came to my mind yesterday as I was going through this. I don't know how many of you did this as kids. We used to go to a, uh, a graveyard that was about a mile and a half from our house. Full moon was the premium opportunity okay it was a graveyard that was beside this old little brethren dunkard is what it was called dunkard brethren okay they were people that baptized people upstream three times okay in the name of the father the son and the spirit so this church building was closed down it was an old one of those little white buildings you might see out in lancaster county across the street from it there was this delp graveyard delp was the last name pennsylvania dutch name okay now a couple rules uh came into play when you went to the graveyard the first one was this never alone okay but going with people was also dangerous because you were just dying to set somebody up send a couple friends down early you know uh but 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 the rule that gave you courage to go and and seriously we, we would talk about it and laugh about it joke about it and you seriously would think you heard things you know how it is like as a kid when you go to funerals you and you're, you're staring at the body and you you know what happens, right? And in the graveyard, everything kind of amps up a little bit. You're there with your friends, this full moon, and you're, everybody's on edge. And here's the thought that came to my mind. I would have never done that alone as a kid because I really was afraid to go there. And what Paul's saying is, look, don't go there into the experience of the Christian life in a world that isn't necessarily friendly to the gospel. Don't go there alone. You're going to need each other's help and support. We are a community. We are a colony. Every individual local church is an outpost of heaven. And God doesn't want us to be there alone because we're more effective when we're together. We're more able to support and encourage each other in the right attitude when we're together in relationship to the gospel of Christ. And I, I want you to notice this, this contending, <clears throat> this striving, this standing together has a very specific focus. It's not contending to protect your reputation. It's not contending to protect your happiness or to secure your plans and ideas. It is a contending that has a very specific focus. And that is the message of the good news. That is what the word gospel means. We are to 
in every way, do everything we can to advance the good news, the gospel of Christ, the message that in spite of what you've done in your life, there is hope for you because a man named Jesus Christ lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again to pay the price for the sins of this world. But folks, that's what we contend for. You know what? Hey, look, can we just be honest and say, sadly, sometimes the church has the reputation of contending for other things as if they were more important than the gospel? I'm not saying there aren't things that we contend for and that we should stand for in terms of ethics and morality. I think that's a clear implication here. Contend for the gospel. Live as citizens of heaven. There are moral and ethical obligations that come to those who know Christ. And we should stand for those things. But there's one thing that we should be most fervent and most concerned about. And that is that we protect the integrity of the message of the cross of Christ. Because that's what binds us together. And I think what Paul's saying is that standing together must be done in the context of Christian community. We need to experience the Christian life together. I know it just sounds like such an obvious statement, but I think it's important that we understand we need to do this life together. Standing alone is unlikely and unnecessary. Okay? You understand that? Standing alone, experiencing the Christian life, which, is, which has an edge to it. It's got an edginess to it. It's unnecessary for you to stand for the gospel of Christ in isolation. God has given us the privilege of doing it together. And so we come back together and we sing songs about the cross of Christ. We're reminded about the preciousness of Christ and what he's done for us. And together we encourage our hearts in corporate worship. And then we go back out into the world to have an effect for Christ. Standing together, knowing someone has your back, they've got you covered. It's why I thought of this. It's why we have a team ministry in our church family. You know why? I don't want kids to think that you live the Christian life in isolation alone. You don't. There are other Christian kids who are seeking to stand for Christ. And the goal of that, the goal of small group communities, what is it? The goal is that, that we would be reminded that we do this together. And you know what that will do too? It will put a sword through the heart of pride. Because we will realize that this life that I'm living for the glory of God, I couldn't do this without you. I think that is the sincere and earnest attitude of the Apostle Paul. In prison, maintaining his relationships. In isolation, maintaining his relationships. Because he knows that he is better with them than without them. And he continues to reach out and to live life together, even though he is physically distant from them. Can I ask you this morning, would you make an unconditional commitment to each other to live this life together for the glory of God? You see, folks, that's what we need. We need to regain the value of Christian community because it's what Christ established. He established a body that is made up of many parts, and the ramifications of that are enormous for the Christian life. Second thing he says to him, these are just the commands that emerge out of the text. Verse 28. Stand firm, contend as one man, and then this, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. What's it mean? It means without being intimidated. Okay, because what we looked at a couple weeks ago was this. The purpose of Paul's chains was to silence him, wasn't it? Take him out of the way. They discussed even killing him in Acts chapter 4, or uh, Peter. Uh, they discussed killing Peter. Why? As a means of get him out of the way. The purpose of the pressure was to silence. 
when you experience the pressure or you anticipate that there's going to be resistance to the change that God is bringing about in your life, what do you need to do? Well, together, we need to, verse 28, be courageous. The idea here, without being frightened, means don't be intimidated, don't be frightened, don't be startled, don't be terrified. Uh, The idea is this, to be scared stiff. I love the different reactions that people have to being uh, frightened by someone. Some people, they just freeze. I have one friend, uh, when I was in college, his name is John, John Weaver. He had a brother named Rick. We invited Rick and John over to our house uh, uh, when I was in college. And, and just through a funny set of circumstances, ended up, this guy got scared by a situation. He just dropped to the ground and fainted like that. Okay, he just, he just dropped. All right, some people, they freeze. Some people, they kind of freak out. Some people drop, okay? What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, don't be discouraged. Don't be frightened. Don't be frozen and intimidated by what comes against you. Don't step off the track. Stay on the field. Keep your arms locked with your team members. That's the idea here. Without being intimidated, without being frightened, The question that comes to mind is this. What would prompt and promote such courage? Because folks, let's just be honest. The the, the Roman world of the first century was a completely different world than the world that we live in, wasn't it? People died for their faith. Rome was the authority. And if you didn't bow to the emperor and say, Caesar, the emperor, is Lord, you were considered a rebel. You were considered hostile to the government. Folks, that is happening today in China. That is happening today in Pakistan. That is happening today in Orissa, India. Where people's houses and church buildings are being burned. What's the goal? Silence them. What's the goal? The Apostle Paul, when he came to Philippi in Acts chapter 16... Remember on his original visit, a demon is cast out of a young girl. She is no longer profitable to the people that used her for their own purposes. A seller of purple is saved named Lydia. And the result is that they come and falsely accuse Paul and Silas of insurrection. They promote, here's the way they said it, Acts 16. They promote customs that are not legal. The custom that they promoted was this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And God, not Caesar. You know what happened to Paul and Silas because of that conviction? They got thrown into prison. And in prison, what did they do? They began to praise God. They were not frightened by the physical beating that they took, which was common in Rome. You can go look at this in history. They were not frightened or threatened by the uh, threat of being burned at a stake of having their head cut off, which is eventually how the Apostle Paul dies. Paul said this in the book of Acts. He says, you know what? The word of God, I am in prison, but the word of God is not in prison. Now, what is Paul? Paul is not being contentious. Paul's being, he's just saying, look, I'm a citizen of another country. I have dual citizenship. I must speak for the king of kings. And Caesar is not king. He is not Lord. Jesus is. Do you realize that as Paul writes this letter back to Philippi, there are a couple of people in that church 
who are in Christ because Paul went to jail and would not be quiet. I read this and I think about the Philippian jailer reading this text. Don't be frightened by anything. Paul saw, or um, the, the Philippian jailer saw the Apostle Paul in stocks. He saw his back ripped open for the gospel of Christ. Our problem is this. That seems years and miles away from us, doesn't it? I want you to know that there are people in the world that need your prayer. In Orissa, India, in China, in Pakistan. And I could go on and on. People that need us to stand with them so they can be courageous together with us. Can I ask you this question? Do you pray? Do you pray for those that serve under the missionary work of Victor John? Do you pray for the believers in Colombia who advance the cause of Christ at personal risk, many losing their jobs? Do you pray for the work of Alan Peggy Horton and OTAN in China? where speaking the name of Christ can get you in jail. Do you pray for the people in Rwanda where Tim Brubaker is ministering? And there's one pastor in particular that we've been praying for who is in prison because he spoke the word of Christ and was falsely accused of a crime. Do you pray? Do you stand together? Now see, what Paul's saying is here is for us, don't be frightened. And you have to think to yourself, what are the things that frighten me? Okay, Why am I quiet about the gospel? I don't want someone to dislike me. I, want to, I don't want someone to think I'm like a fundamentalist fanatic. Right? Isn't that why we're careful? We want to be perceived as intellectually savvy and well-nuanced. That's what we want to be thought of as. We want to be respected that we have a logical faith in Christ. No, we have a miraculous faith in Christ that I think is incredibly logical. But... If you became a Christian so that you could be respected, you signed up on the wrong team. Okay? You did. You made a bad mistake. The way to become popular in America isn't to say, you know what, I want to be a follower of Jesus. It will cost you. It will require of you courage. I want you to notice how Paul says this. He says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And just a couple things he's going to say. Number one, verse 28. We are promised the victory. He says, this boldness that you express under duress is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. The idea that Paul uses here is strong. Your courage, your not being frightened when intimidated becomes an omen. Okay, in what sense? They see your courage in the face of threat to death. And that's in our culture, it's just so hard for us to get this. They watch you, Paul, beaten, thrown into jail. And in jail, what are you doing at midnight? You're singing praises to God. That wasn't the plan. That singing praise to God captures the eye of the world around you. And so the chief jailer, the warden of the jail in Philippi, is compelled to trust Christ. Why? Because Paul's joy in Christ could not be explained from human circumstances. There was no human rationale that would explain why Paul is happy. He's sitting in jail. He's in stocks. He's been beaten. And about midnight, they start singing. What do you do with people like that? Do you understand? Folks, when, when we stand and stand and stand, not contentiously, but courageously, for what we really believe that the Spirit of God is revealing us 
to us through his word. When we do that, there is a watching world out there. And that's standing in spite of what it cost you in terms of morality for young people, in terms of what you will and won't watch as young people. That stand that you take, that courage that you evidence catches the eye of the world. It becomes an omen. It becomes a sign either to say, I'm going down the wrong road to the unbeliever or to call them to come and say, you know what? I'm watching your life and there is something distinct and encouraging and infectious and contagious about your faith in Christ. I want to know a little more. They may not be coming saying, hey, I want to trust Jesus. But they may, as a result of watching your life, in the face of constant pressure. Mom and Dad, I hope you understand this. When your children stand up and speak for Christ in school, it doesn't go well. Last year I had a number of kids talk about in, in philosophy or history or English classes where they stood for the truth and where the teacher actually said, okay, if you believe such and such, an absolute moral truth biblically, stand on this side of the room. If you don't believe it, stand on that side of the room. In the one class, the girl recounted for me how it was only her and one other girl that stood on that side of the room. Oh, that feels really good. That feels about like what it's like when you're in uh, elementary school and they're picking the teams and you're the last person picked. That feels good. You know what? We all want to be in the majority. And when you stand for the minority position because you believe it's right, there will be a price to be paid. And I believe more and more in our world. I said this a couple weeks ago, especially in the area of the medical profession. Your conviction for Christ, the medication that you will not give to a patient, I believe one day will cost you your job. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that over the issue of sexual morality, the church will come under pressure. Not may. I believe it will. Why? Because we have to stand for what we believe that God's word teaches. Come what may, that's Paul's attitude. Put me in jail, beat my back. I'm going to sit in that stocks and I'm going to give praise to the king of kings because that's why I'm here. Folks, we need to stand with courage. Paul says when we do, it will be an omen to them that they, apart from Jesus, will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. When you experience that unplanned courage, the courage that you know you do not personally possess. And when you live in light of that courage, the Spirit of God is going to so profoundly affirm and convince you of your conversion experience. And the opposite will also be true. That when one is unable to stand, stand over a consistent period of time, it will become clear to them, you know what, I'm probably not converted. Because when the pressure comes, I collapse. But for the true believer in Christ, that ability to stand, which was unplanned, it was hoped that you would be able to, but it was unplanned, it will become the deepest assurance of your unity with the body of Christ. And I believe this is, I think this is just such an incredibly powerful statement. Verse 29, would you just look at what it says? Be courageous because it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer. Be courageous together. Why? Because we are promised the victory. We don't earn the victory. We are given it. We are called to suffer. What you would never choose, God uses. 
and understand that whatever God in his sovereign plan allows has a God-intended purpose and he will turn it for good. That, I believe, is how the Philippian jailer would look at this passage of Scripture. He would say, I am in Christ because Paul and Silas stood firm to their convictions. It was given to them as an opportunity. The idea here is it has been graced to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe. So in the same sense that your salvation is given to you as a gift in Christ, so Paul says, suffering comes to you for the advance of the cause of Christ. What you would never choose, God will use. And when we grasp that truth together, it will give us a sense of corporate courage. Verse 30, here's what Paul says. He says, it has been granted to you not only to, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. Since you are going through the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The word for struggle is the word agony. Agony. What is Paul saying to them? Here's what he's saying. He says, in the face of your struggle, you are not alone. Paul's saying, look, I'm standing for Christ and there's been a consequence. I will not back down. Will you? Will you? Paul's saying to the church in Philippi, stand courageously and remember as you stand courageously, you're not alone. I got your back. I'm standing there with you. Paul took personal responsibility for the effect of his life and its impact on others. Folks, realize this. Your response to pressure has an impact on on those around you. Your response to pressure has an immediate impact on those around you. Why? Because none of us live an unobserved life. None of us. Somebody is watching your life. You may think, well, I'm too young or I'm too old or whatever. I'm too unimportant. My job's unimportant. Whatever it is, somebody is watching your life. Your life has an impact on those around you. It's a story told, uh, in, in a sense, some have called it a fictitious story about a, a veteran soldier in the French army. He comes across a young recruit who is frozen by fear and the demands of battle. Seeing his fear, this veteran soldier comes beside this young man and says, Come, son, and you and I will do a fine thing for France. Come, son, and you and I, in spite of your fear, will do a fine thing for France. Here's what I hear the Apostle Paul saying in this text. Come, friends, and we will do a fine thing for the cause of Christ. We will stand. We will not be contentious. We'll be joyful. If we're in prison, we're going to sing about his love. If we're attacked, we're not going to attack back. But we will not back down. And I think what Paul is saying here is, look, the same struggle you saw me have, I know you're going through it. But I want you to know that I'm being faithful because I know my faithfulness is observed by you. And when you observe my faithfulness, you're going to be more courageous. Each summer, my family and I try to rent a surrey at the shore and ride on the boardwalk. And uh, those surreys can hold anywhere from, let's say, six to eight people for a bigger one. And as you ride that, everybody's got a set of pedals. Six people have a set of pedals. And if you're in the front seat, what's your assumption? Everybody's carrying their load. But when you see people ride by with a big smile on their face on their bike and realize how slow you're going and how hard it is, 
You go like you look around. You're like, I, I thought something was wrong. <laughs> okay, man. I tell you what. You know what that is? That's discouraging. But when everybody's pulling and everybody's doing their part, you know what? It's like it being a team. You know why people like those things? We don't like to give up our independence. You know why people like Surrey's? They like doing something together. It's encouraging when you do something together. It builds a sense of unity and team. That's why corporations go and do those things. That's why they go do whitewater rafting trips and stuff like that or go to a game. Why? To build the sense of camaraderie. We're in this together. Folks, we can be courageous better when we stand together. I think it is so critical and important that we understand that truth. This morning, would you ask yourself this question? Who's on your team? To whom do you, by your actions, say, come, fearful friend, and we will do a fine thing for God? Who in your sphere of influence is close enough to be that person or that group of people for you? Because we are to experience this life together. We are to be courageous together. And the last that I'll give you, and I just want to begin into this. We are to pursue and protect the unity of the body of Christ together. The, the overall implication of the next passage is that we are better together than we are when we alone. There are things that we can accomplish as a team that we cannot accomplish as individuals. We need to capture this sense. And here's what it will demand. It will demand humility and a selfless spirit. It will demand a heart that is willing to put the concerns of others above the concerns for self. It will involve putting the well-being and needs of others first. Folks, as a church family, we're going to begin to engage in a discussion about small groups, with I, which I personally have a deep and abiding passion and desire for. I want to see that happen in our church. I would rather not be a church that has small groups. I would rather be a church of small groups. I would rather that we have the conviction that, you know what? We need to live this life together. A self-effacing conviction that says, you know what, I can't live the Christian life in isolation. And when I do, I am living in disobedience to the plan of God. He intended that we live this life in earnestness, in light of the struggles. He intended that we be courageous together. I spoke with one of our college students last night on the phone, uh, Jake, Jake Adams. And I always ask the kids, what are you doing in regards to church? Are you getting connected to a church community? And secondly, do you have a small band of brothers and sisters that you are binding yourself to so that you can maintain the course? What I'm trying to instill in them is a fear of independence. Okay, and I'll just be very blunt. I want them to be afraid of being alone. Paul was in jail. He refused to be there alone he talks about being there in jail, away from Philippi, in Rome. And he says, I am with you. He had a sense of community. Well, talking to Jake last night, I asked him that question. How's that going? He said, well, I found a small group of brothers that I can pursue Christ with. 
He was all excited. Found a group of freshmen that love Christ. He said, these guys love Christ. They want to pray together. They want to get together every evening and pray. And so maybe you can put that church pursuit on hold for a second. And here's what I thought. I thought if he has that, for his sake, I'm encouraged. His future will be brighter if he depends on that band of brothers. The book of Ecclesiastes says this. It says, two are better than one. Because if one falls down, the other can pick them up. Folks, it's just very simple logic. There are no Fortune 500 companies that have one employee. There are none. There are no NFL teams that have just one player. There are no Major League Baseball teams that just have a pitcher. None. And there are no substantial Christians, substantive, courageous Christians who live in isolation. None. And so I give you these three thoughts at the bottom of the sheet that I gave you about small groups because we just want to encourage you in this direction. A couple conclusions, principles that emerge out of this text. One is this. We are responsible for each other's progress and protection. Okay, we are responsible for each other's progress and protection. Okay, I have a personal responsibility for a group of people in this church for your progress and protection. And folks, notice the way that I'm saying this doesn't focus on what small groups will do for you. Because if you pursue small groups for what it does for you, you get ticked off at somebody in your small group and you'll fly the coop because you're not committed. Okay? It is about us being there for each other's progress and protection. Secondly, our pursuit of genuine care for and from each other must be intentional. Okay? Our pursuit of genuine care for and from each other must be intentional. You say, Tim, why are you saying that? Because it's not natural for most of us to get involved in small communities. If it is natural for you and you have that, you know what? Just keep going in those relationships for the glory of God. You don't, if you do it naturally, you don't need a small groups ministry. Praise God. Keep pursuing that. But I'm convinced that most of us live in a pretty busy world with calendars that are far too busy and lives that are far too cluttered, overcommitted. And we need to become intentional. So as a church, what are we doing? We're just giving a little bit of a structure to help to encourage what we believe that God's word emphasizes, and that is that life is to be lived together uh, with this conviction that there are things that will happen in the context of a small group setting that don't happen here on Sunday morning. Okay, that's the basic conviction. What happens in a corporate service is different than what happens in a small group setting. The goals that we have for this meeting are different than the goals for a small group setting. The purposes are different. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so that if we're going to do it, it must be an intentional pursuit of genuine care for and from others. And this becomes the test of humility. Do I realize that I cannot live this life alone? Do I know that I need care from others? You may say, oh, I know I should care for people. No, but do you know that you need care from people? that you also need to receive encouragement. 
And then the third thought, and we'll get more into this in weeks to come. We need to have a context in which this can occur. Otherwise, it just won't happen. And so our desire as a leadership team in our church is to just to provide some context in which this kind of fellowship can be spawned, can be encouraged. We want to provide a bit of a greenhouse setting, okay, in which we can start to spend more time together, not as a large body, but in small group settings where we can begin to be people who live the Christian life, experience the Christian life together, where we can be courageous together, where we can pursue unity and progress together for the glory of God. May God help us to that end. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.